We are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts which impact the ever-changing social world in which we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land which we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belongs to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are so privileged to welcome you to today's conversation. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer, and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with School of Social and Family Dynamics. My amazing guest today is Annie Ferguson. Annie is a doctoral student in our sociology program. She initially got her bachelor's in planning and environmental policy from Western Washington University, then went on to get her master's in sustainable agriculture at Iowa State University. She then went on to work closely in community settings with the Community Food and Agriculture Coalition of Montana as a program director, did community forward consulting, and served as a senior advisor for Cora Newman's U.S. Senate race in 2019. Then she joined us here at ASU. Her current research is focused on white people's emotions and the ways in which they manage their emotions and how that predicts their engagement with anti-racism. I'm so excited to talk to her about all of this and more. Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Aubrey. So the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just going to be icebreakers to get to know you better at a surface level. And then the ending ones will get quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is to just try to answer them in about a sentence. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right. So my first question for Annie Ferguson is, what is your favorite sitcom? <laughs> I, you know, I, uh, I'm a lover of like trash action TV, so I don't actually watch sitcoms that often, but I did just watch Hentified and it was so good. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. It's about a family that owns, um, a taqueria in Boyle Heights. that's rapidly gentrifying in LA and just like their process of going through that. And like there's great queer love, which I always love showing on, on sitcoms and um, like almost every episode I, I cry. It's like, it's such a good show. I love that. <laughs> All right. My second question is what is your comfort meal? Oh man, I, I don't like, I don't really have a, like a really great comfort meal, but when I was sick, whenever I was sick, when I was growing up, my mom would always make for us. <laughs> like just chicken broth with pasta and Parmesan cheese and a toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So if I'm feeling really down or like sick or whatever, that's, that's definitely what I'm craving. Hey, that sounds like a whole meal to me. So I'm into that. So my final question, Annie, is if you could shrink any animal down to the size of a house cat to keep it as a pet, which one would you want? I would. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a very serious question. You know? <laughs> I know. I would totally shrink my dog who I already have. Uh, I, I have like an 80 pound dog and she's, she's uh, half Malamute. And I, um, 
I left her in Montana because she hates the heat because of her the Malamute stuff and is not great in cities. She doesn't really love people that much. But if I could shrink her down to cat size, I 100% would because I miss her. I love Malamutes. And I think the idea of like a baby sized Malamute sounds absolutely precious. So I love that answer. So I want to move into talking about your research interest. And I'm so intrigued by it because you study something called anti-racism. And we hear a lot about racism through, you know, media and news outlets. But this concept of anti-racism might be a new term for a lot of people. So can you describe what anti-racism is and why it's important that we understand it? Yeah, Um so I, um, I actually wrote a paper last year defining anti-racism because I don't think that the uh, I don't think that what we had had so far in academia was really that strong of a reflection. And so I defined it based on a quote um, from Ijeoma Oluo, um, who's an author and um, uh, not an academic, um, but definitely I would say a lay race theorist, drawing language from Antonia Randolph. Um, and, uh, she defines anti-racism as the commitment or like, this is a bit of a tweak, but basically the commitment to eradicate racism wherever one finds it. So signaling that there's a long-term ongoing process, um, that anti-racism is really about being the antithesis of racism. So sometimes anti-racist efforts seek to just kind of make small reforms or make small tweaks or like, uh, you know, reduce racism a little bit, but really the, the goal of anti-racism should be to eradicate racism. And then wherever one finds it being important because um, it recognizes that racism occurs at all of these different scales and uh, it changes all the time. And so anti-racism needs to kind of shift and find racism within ourselves in the other people that we um, connect with and in the institutions that are around us. So I think that that is such a wonderful answer to such a very complex question that sounds very simple. And I love how you've integrated the systematic aspects of racism into that answer, because I think that the way that you know, in full disclosure for our audio listeners, if you can't tell by uh, the everything about me, I am white. So I think it's really um, interesting for white people to start to think about anti-racism because I think the dialogue is sort of like, well, if I'm not doing sort of this interpersonal, active, violent racism, then you know, I'm not doing anything to contribute to sort of racism as a whole, when in actuality, um, you know, sort of just me sitting here in a way contributes to these sort of systematic aspects of racism. And I think that that's something that a lot of white people have difficulty grappling with. And I think it's really important that, you know, your work is starting to understand how white people are thinking about those topics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm kind of a believer in that um, a better way of looking at racism is thinking about how we are all racist. <laughs> and I know that that's a, a, can be a hard pill to swallow because like you say, you know, in our culture, we um, have a tradition of, of calling the only people that we call racists are white supremacists, you know, people who are like actively and violently um, enacting racism. And I think that 
you know, living in a society like this, we grow up surrounded by so many stereotypes that um, inform racist beliefs and things that are just kind of in the air and in the water and that we don't even notice. And so I think, you know, there are ways in which we all have integrated those things, white people and people of color. Um, and so I think that, you know, a lot of that is, is internalized and we enact it all the time. Like when we hire people who feel comfortable or feel like us rather than based on, you know, skill sets or merit alone, a lot of that winds up coming down to race or the culture within race or, you know, these kinds of things that, that feel defensible and feel non-racist, but really oftentimes have some grounding in, in race and stereotypes that we've heard as we've grown up and just in the way America is segregated and the people that we know, we continue to be separate. So yeah, I think it shows up in a lot of different ways. So yeah, I agree. It's <laughs> more than apt time for us to be working on this as white folks. Right. And you do a lot of work about sort of how white people feel and how they're sort of regulating those emotions and how that might predict engagement with anti-racism. So can you talk a little bit about what those links might be or, you know, what got you interested in understanding that relation between sort of emotions and emotional regulation as it relates to anti-racism? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, a lot of this comes from you know, my, a lot of my interest comes from my personal experience. And so maybe I'll, I'll share that a little bit as a way to kind of explain why I think this is, um, why it's interesting to me and why I think it's important. You know, I, um, like many Americans, most of my, uh, most of my heritage, most of my ancestry goes back to like very early American settlers. So I have many family members who were on the Mayflower. I'm related to one of my direct ancestors was the first governor of Plymouth Colony. And so like, you know, I have, uh, I am I am not one of those folks who, who might be able to say, oh, you know, it's not my problem. My ancestors didn't do that. My ancestors definitely did do that, <laughs> you know? Um, and also, you know, although I think we all, we all benefit from, from the privileges of whiteness now, but you know, there's no escaping it for me for sure. Um, and so, and then also, you know, as I was growing up, I was growing up in Boston and in Montana, um, both of which were places where I don't know if more than the rest of the country, but certainly growing up in Boston, we were deeply indoctrinated in the pilgrim story and this idea of, you know, courageous pilgrims and um, people who weathered really hard times and, you know, worked really closely hand in hand with indigenous peoples. Um, and these are really the narratives that I was raised with and thinking that my ancestors were these really, you know, um, you know, yeah, courageous and, and good folks that, that came here in a good way. And then growing up in Montana, you know, kind of similar stories around homesteaders and that process across the West, being on the Oregon Trail, you know, all of these like stories of my, my lineage and my folks that, that were, that really lauded and celebrated us. Um, and so, you know, when I was in my, it was really not until I was in my late twenties or thirties um, that I kind of started taking in more media and learning from the lived experience of black people and then moving back to Montana, getting much more involved in hearing stories from indigenous folks. Um, and 
and it really piqued my interest. And I started studying more on, you know, kind of how Indigenous people see um, the process of colonization and um, hearing the history from their perspective gave me a very different understanding of my ancestry. And so, you know, for me, that process of kind of learning about racism, basically, through living, learning about the lived experience of other folks, um, really brought up a huge amount of emotions. You know, I was questioning um, my ancestry, uh, my my bloodline, uh, the blood that's in my body, you know, it just, it felt very personal and relevant, understanding all of that. And there was guilt and shame and fear and questioning and like, what am I supposed to do with this information? And it's a hugely overwhelming topic. Um, I think a lot of us deal with it on our own. You know, there aren't a lot of like spaces where we can have conversations about this um, because it's a really tough topic. A lot, it's, a lot of people don't want to have a dinner table conversation about racism and anti-racism. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's not something that we discuss very regularly in America. And so I think that knowing how to process those emotions and knowing how to deal with them is really difficult. Um, and it certainly was for me. And I think that I've seen that in a lot of other people who I've watched engage with anti-racism. And then I think, you know, watching the arc of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, especially I would say, you know, I mean, it's been around since what I think 2013 was the original Black Lives Matter tweet, but, um, you know, it's, it's been around, you know, in the last, whatever, 18 months, watching, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, this just like exponential growth in white folks who were encountering racism, encountering systemic racism, considering that there may be actually racism in policing and in all of these other institutions, joining book clubs, reading about things, and then by now, really um, not engaging at the same level. And so for me, knowing my own experience, my question with that is, what's the role that emotions are playing in that? Um, There's been some really interesting research on, um, it's called the, it's Jennifer Mueller's theory of racial ignorance. And what she is arguing is that, white Americans actually make a, you know, whether it's conscious or subconscious um, choice to remain ignorant of racism because it is this very difficult intractable issue. We are personally implicated, um, you know, especially if we look at like the generational wealth that we have and what reparations might look like or what, you know, recognizing that maybe all of the jobs that we got, we didn't necessarily get exclusively through merit and our own hard work, um, you know, and how do we reckon with those things as a people um, that, that oftentimes it's easier to choose ignorance um, and either to choose ignorance about, you know, what we could do about it or to choose ignorance um, in entirely. Um, and kind of just like forget that racism is a thing that exists because what can I do? Uh, and so from my perspective, some of that comes up because we don't know how to navigate the emotions around racism and we don't have good tools for it. And I mean, as I was working through it you know, on my own and I was living in a pretty rural place in Montana, I wasn't talking with a lot of folks around this as I was starting to engage with it. Um, 
but I remember talking to my therapist about it and her response was, oh, Annie, you do so much. You need to just be easier on yourself. Go easier on yourself. And I was like, that is, that's, okay, that's not the response. Like, I get it. That's a very like kind and empathetic response, but that, that is not a response that like helps me figure out how to move through this and get to a place where I can like feel confident in myself again as a white person, because a lot of it also has implications around like differentiates guilt as being, I did a bad thing and shame as being, I'm a bad person. And, you know, that means that guilt is a lot easier to deal with. It can still be hard to deal with, but there's a thing that we did that is bad. And so, you know, we can address that thing and make amends and, and deal with the action itself. Whereas with shame and thinking, am I a bad person? It's so much harder to navigate, figuring out how to emerge from. And, you know, the only good white identities that we know of, the people who feel good about their whiteness are white supremacists. <laughs> and so, and, you know, I mean, there's a long history of white anti-racist activists. You know, there are, there is a lineage of folks who have worked on this um, over over all of the time that racism has existed, there have been people who have fought against it. And some of those folks have been white. And so, you know, there are lineages that we can tap into in ways that I think we can like live and act that, that reduces that shame. But I think, um, you know, those emotions are, are powerful predictors, I think, of whether we stay in the game or not. And so, yeah, I'm really interested in how people who, white people who do stay in the game, how they manage those emotions and how they, they kind of wrestle with it and what we can learn from them to help help other folks stay in, stay in the game. Yeah, I mean, that is so important because, you know, I think that so many white people have such difficulty grappling with these emotions because it's like, you know, if a big part of your identity is being white, which for a lot of people it is, right? Like your racial ethnic identity is a big part of your identity. And to have that feel threatened or to feel this sense of like, oh, this is a bad thing. I mean, that makes a lot of people just dig their heels in and go, no, I'm a good person because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, it makes it so difficult to engage in those dialogues. And something that I think is so fascinating, as you mentioned, like, you know, white, like the only example we really have of pride and whiteness being white supremacists. I think what a lot of white people who come from like immigrant backgrounds don't realize is that those things were taken from you because of white supremacy. Um, I'm actually only like second generation American. Um, my grandparents were born in Hungary and Germany. And, you know, my father never learned to speak Hungarian. He never learned to speak German. And, you know, when I talk to my family about that, they sort of go like, oh, you know, we wanted to be American. So we just assimilated. And it's like, did you really want to be American or did you just want to integrate into, you know, whiteness? Because at the time, you know, I mean, that was was what made your family safer. I mean, my great grandfather never learned to speak English, yet my family was able to assimilate into whiteness and, you know, rural Ohio in a way that made living more comfortable for them. But as a result, 
my family lost their culture. And I think it's fascinating to think about how, you know, we, we think, oh, there's no white culture. It's like there is. But for many people that was taken from you in order to, you know, just integrate and, you know, eat up these narratives of white supremacy. So that's just something that um, that made me think of. So I want to talk about a presentation you recently did at the American Sociological Association Conference. It was called Redefining Anti-Racism, Sharpening Academic Language Through Community Discourse. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about that presentation and exactly what community discourse has to do with anti-racism and the role of community. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, I love this question. I think, you know, community discourse to me is so important. And it was kind of this, this paper was kind of a reflection on um, what I had seen before coming to, to grad school. Um, because, you know, what I had seen in the, especially I think in, um, you know, the summer of 2020 and the kind of growth of the Black Lives Matter movement at that time was, you uh, that people on social media and particularly black women were having a really clear discussion about what anti-racism looks like and what they wanted, especially from white folks, what they wanted us to be doing around anti-racism. And then I got into academia and started reading about anti-racism. And I was like, what are these definitions? They're, they're wild. Um. <laughs> and they just were like, they seemed unclear. Some of them centered white people, which I think, you know, is always an interesting thing because my work centers white people, but I absolutely don't think that the movement should center white people. I think, you know, as a white person, that's what I do. But um, yeah, the, the movement or the definition itself centering white people is like, totally anti um it's working at total cross purposes i think with with the focus of anti-racism um and all these other issues with it so um, my paper kind of drew together a lot of the definitions that i had been seeing online and that things that people had the especially black women had been mentioning online as important and so it's also trying to participate in this tradition of um you know, incorporating and celebrating voices that are not traditionally in academia and valuing non-academic voices like Randolph calls these lay race theorists. Um, and so uh, partially because I think, you know, the politics of citation and the importance of writing past wrongs around um, who, about how ways in which we have really undersighted um, black people in particular and other people of color in the past. Um, and so writing that, but also recognizing that there's a huge amount of intelligence and aptitude and understanding of these issues outside of academia and valuing a voice just because it has a PhD behind its name um, is not really necessarily the best way to address these issues um, that are really community grounded. So um, out of that, um, Part of it was the definition from Ijeoma Oluo that I talked about earlier. And then I also focused on, um, uh, because a lot of people in the movement were speaking to how they wanted individuals to act within anti-racism. I also made a definition of individual anti-racism based off of um, things from a lot of folks. So that definition is that anti-racism is the commitment to eradicate racism wherever one finds it. 
as I said before, by one, building an understanding of racism. Um, so seeing kind of there being a, a knowledge base that's really important to accurate participation and very key and not stopping there, but taking action to eliminate racism within oneself, in other people, in institutions, and through actions outside institutions. So recognizing that there's work to reduce our own internalized biases and racisms, um, in addressing racism when you see it, when you see somebody else say something, you know, I think a lot of, there's been some really interesting research by um, Pika and Fagan and others on kind of the back, the backstaging of racism, the ways in which, um, at least pre-Trump, um, racism had become something that people were a lot more comfortable discussing in white-only spaces than in, multi than in diverse spaces. And so um, a lot of those racist statements are happening in rooms where there's only white people around. And so the importance of calling those out, also talking to your friends and family about racism and what you're learning, bringing other people into the movement, and then really addressing the structural pieces. Um, through voting, through participating in, um, you know, um, actions and support. I mean, we can see how successful the anti-critical race theory movement has been. And that is solely, you know, I'm sure that there's funding from wherever, but like it's being done as a ground up, very grassroots process in small communities and then at the state level all across the country. And if they have that power, we have the power to, take actions against things like that and take actions against racism in our institutions as well. Um, and then that uh, the definition also frames that anti-racism is an ongoing practice and commitment that must be accountable to anti-racist BIPOC and consider intersectional systems of oppression. So all of those were things that I had heard coming up really strongly in the community that weren't necessarily being reflected very well in academic definitions that we had so yeah Annie I love that your work ha is so important in sort of translating what we see activists and just people of color talking about you know what they want from anti-racism what they want from white people that is very difficult to translate in an academic context and it is difficult for a variety of reasons, yet I think you've navigated them incredibly gracefully. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about that sort of internal um, work that has to be done with anti-racism. And I will, um, you know, I think it's okay to kind of disclose things and talk about my personal journey with anti-racism. You know, um, I've always been a big advocate of social justice. I mean, from the time I was like nine and was able to conceptualize these topics, I was like, why is anyone being treated unfairly? And I think that was, you know, a big part of growing up as just like a queer child and seeing how people who were like me were treated and just really having this desire for, you know, in my mind, equality, what I would now probably call equity. Um, but I really do struggle in so many ways with that interpersonal aspect of anti-racism and in particular with family dynamics, because it is so 
challenging when, I mean, thankfully I don't have any, any friends or people who I choose to be around who say things or, you know, have convictions that are horribly damaging, but it's very difficult when you have a mother, a father, a sibling who says things. And I think for me, it's been so many years of like trying to fight it so head on and always being met with resistance that now I'm in this phase where I'm trying to talk to those difficult people in my life with more empathy. And I'm trying to take a more like, let's find common ground approach and trying to, you know, very, it's very slowly, right? It's like pulling teeth. And I think that is what is so difficult is that when people have certain convictions and you have to have them in your life and you desperately want them to be different, you really want to just go head on and go, here is why this opinion that you have or why this thing that you've said is so wrong, yet that is so it causes people to put these really massive walls up. And the only way that I think I have been able to navigate those relationships right now is this incredibly slow process. And I am very slowly seeing some change in those people in my life. Like, I don't think that my dad is about to, you know, put on a BLM t-shirt, but I do think that, you know, he's becoming more accepting to this idea that systematic racism exists. And I think to a lot of people, that's like probably not good enough, (laughs) but you know, for me, it's really been trying to make these baby steps happen. I don't know. I'm just so curious if you've ever had those interpersonal relationships. I just wanted to share my experience because I think maybe a, a quite a few white listeners can relate to this and just what your views on that are. Yeah. I know. I think it's really hard. I really think it's hard. Um, I, I, I get this question a lot from my friends and from other folks, am I doing this right? (laughs) Um, And I am really lucky because my family is all pretty on board. So the conversations that we definitely still have conversations about it, but there I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to convince them that racism exists, you know, and that in and of itself is they already know that. So for me, my conversations are mostly at, you know, the next level, like what do we do about it or the ways in which racism exists or like, you know, exploring all these different things. Um, So I'm very lucky in that that perspective, but I've had, I've also had conversations that have gone really wrong. You know, some of my coming to this work was being like, wow, I'm trying to work on this and I am messing up. That did not go well. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that, from what I have read and from, you know, like there's a guy named David Camped who's based out of North Carolina. Um, I can't remember the name of his um, work, but he's really focused on these interpersonal pieces and, ha- and, and believes that they really are one of the biggest keys, um, especially what, what we as white folks can do because there are so many white folks who aren't on board that like talking to them is such a big action. It's such an important action, you know, along with voting, you got to get everybody else voting with us. So, um, and I think, you know, it's kind of indicative of this broader 
massive division within our country, you know, and we're all getting our news from different places and we get different, completely different sets of facts. And so it's hard to have these conversations. Um, it's hard to have a lot of conversations. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, from my experience and from the, the things that I've read, I think that that focus on empathy is really key um, because a, it can be easy to get angry and frustrated, um, especially when these are things that feel like moral issues. You know, a lot of times it can be easier to jump to being enraged, um, which is like great for taking action, but not great in an interpersonal setting. Um, <laughs> so like, yeah, it can be easy to have really strong emotions about it and trying to like set those aside and really hear the person that you're talking to. Um, and you know, if we're the people that care about them, we're the only people that can really listen to them like that. And so, you know, we are, are a rare, a rare person in their life who can listen to them with empathy and bring these ideas to them. Um, so yeah, I think that that, that slow process and persistence around that stuff and figuring out ways to um, bring it up in ways that, that resonate with their lived experience you know I think that so many of us rely on our lived experience to make decisions and if our lived experiences don't highlight racism like if we have never had a bad experience with the police it can be really hard to really imagine what that would be like right. so sharing lived experience with folks sharing like this is how it feels like imagine just even if you don't believe it imagine how that would feel to have the cop pull up behind you and think you might die today. Like, just imagine how that would feel. Even if you don't believe it, just imagine how scary that would be for a minute. You know, like things like that, that can help to put people in other people's shoes. And then I think, of course, being able to be there for those, for their emotions about it, you know, and, and, you know, see with them that, yeah, this is really hard. And yeah, it does mean a lot of things. And yeah, what, how are we implicated in it? And it's okay to feel sad or angry or defensive or whatever, as long as we don't stop there. So like helping them to be there and like help them work through those things, I think is a really big gift. I think that was beautifully said, Annie. I think your work is so important and I am so excited to see just all of the incredible things that you do. Before we sort of transition into our deep questions to end on, is there anything you would like to end on? Like if somebody was listening to this podcast right now and they were going, you know, what can I do to, you know, be more anti-racist or to practice anti-racism more in my life, what would be your sort of final piece of advice that you would give them? Um, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that, that really impacted me personally and my understanding of like seeing all of this within myself um, was taking some implicit bias tests. Those are available for free online. I think they're, um, they're through Yale, I think, or MIT. Um, and I think they're called like implicit assessment tests or something, IATs. Um, and they were really helpful for me to see where I had internalized racism um, and to start noticing that when I'm out on the street or when I engage with somebody and going, wow, would I have said that to that person in that way if they were white? And like 
noticing that and not immediately moving to shame, but moving to like guilt and learning and like, wow, that is wild. That is really embedded in me. I'm going to make a different choice um, and starting to work on that internally um, and then finding ways to take action and engage and participate in the movement because there's so much work that needs to be done beyond <laughs> what's happening in here. Um, so um, yeah, that's what I would say. Think of, work on yourself a little bit and, and figure out ways to plug in. All right. Fantastic. So this was a great conversation with Annie Ferguson. So we are now going to transition into our sort of closing questions in the show. This is one of my favorite aspects of sort of the interview, because I think it is such a great way to just better understand your personal philosophies. So are you ready? (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) You sent me these questions and I was like, oh my gosh, these are hard. Okay. (laughs) Do my best. <laughs> right. So my first question, Annie, is what was a hard lesson for you to learn? I mean, I feel like I learned most of my lessons from my mistakes. <laughs> so I I think I've had a lot of lessons that didn't feel fun to learn. Um, but I would say one of the best lessons um, was that I can be wrong and it's okay. Um, and like having the ability to be accountable, um, and have people hold me accountable is like such a gift. And so I think realizing that I can be wrong and I can mess up and I can make mistakes that hurt people. Of course, I want to minimize that, but like, it's usually repairable if you try really hard and it's definitely a learning process and it's worth it. So I think some people get so scared of messing up that we stop. We just are like, I'm just going to not participate because I know I'm going to screw up and I don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And it's like, yeah, that is scary. And it gives me anxiety still, but like (laughs) it's, it's usually repairable. And so knowing, knowing that and knowing that I can recover from my mistakes and still be a good person is uh, really a big learning. I think that is a fantastic lesson. So my second question is, what do you love the most about yourself? (laughs) Um, I had to phone a friend for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But one of the things that they said that I was like, yeah, that's true. I do love that about myself. Um, Was that I'm pretty good at savoring life, I think. And I've always been a fan of, as my friends who hike with me or walk around campus with me know, I will stop and smell every rose and I will look very closely at every flower. Um, And I love a good meal and just, you know, I love going out to eat by myself because then you can really savor the meal. No distractions. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think when it comes to like uh, being able to pause and see beauty in the world. I think that's something that I'm good at. That's wonderful. I um, I think it's so important to savor things. And I think eating alone is so powerful. I love going to movies alone. I think everyone should have more sort of individual experiences where they can just completely savor. So my final question, Annie, is what is one rule you would want everyone to follow? Um, fight harder 
<laughs> for whatever you fight for. Um, we, we, we can all do a little more and there's so much that needs to be done. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. I think that's a great rule. So Annie, I just want to say thank you again so much. And thank you all for listening. This was my conversation with Annie Ferguson. Thanks so much, Audrey. I appreciate it. If you're interested in contacting today's guest, you can reach Annie at annie.ferguson at asu.edu. Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting the sanfordschool.asu.edu slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. Thanks for listening.